Hey gang, welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot. This episode has been sponsored by our awesome patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. If you'd like to join them and show your support for the podcast, check the show notes for a link. Announcing Bobo Links. Bobo Links are a new meat snack from Blue Nest Beef and only come from Autobahn certified bird-friendly American ranches. It's made with 100% grass-fed beef, no hormones, antibiotics, or grain. Boba Links are individually wrapped, and I keep one in my pocket for a quick midday snack. Boba Links are everything I want in a meat snack, no fillers, no junk, great flavor and texture. Check the show notes or my link tree for a link where you can buy Boba Links and get $10 off your first package by using the code BOBOREBOOT. This week on the show, my friend from Oklahoma State University Extension, John Weir, joins me to talk about some of the things he's learned in his 32 years at Stillwater. We talk about all things burning and fire right after these messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, John Weir, welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you today? I am good, Brian. How are you doing? I'm doing outstanding. It's, uh, well, I'm doing, I, I guess I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. Like a lot of the rest of us, I could use a rain yep. very, very desperately, but uh, we can talk about drought later. Let's talk about John Weir. So, uh, before we get into it, I've known you for years. I know where you're at and I know what you've been doing. So why don't you give our listeners uh, a little bit of a taste of, of who you are and where you're at? Uh, well, my name is John Weir. I'm assistant uh, associate extension specialist here at the Natural Resource Ecology Management Department at Oklahoma State University. Uh, I've been at OSU for 32 years now. I spent the first 16 years of my time here running the uh, OSU research range, a research ranch out west of Stillwater. Uh, then when the Natural Resource Ecology Management Department was formed, um, I was asked to join the faculty there, and I've been there, been here ever since. So doing that, I work, uh, I teach classes, I do research on fire ecology, fire effects, um, patch burning, all the deal, and then uh, extension duties as well. Looking, I guess I am the extension prescribed fire, fire ecologist here for Oklahoma, and the Southern Great Plains, I like to say, a lot of times I say I'm the extension specialist for Kansas, Texas, and Nebraska a lot. So uh, I'd, I like I'd be happy to claim you. I'd be like happy to claim you because yeah. Kansas State does uh, not really recognize what goes on in the Red Hills. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, doing that, I grew up here in Oklahoma. So I'm a Oklahoma, grew up in Southwest Oklahoma and uh, Went to school at Cameron down at Lawton and then went to Texas Tech for a couple of years, got my master's and got to come back here to Oklahoma and been here working at OSU ever since. 32 years, you said. 32 years. Yeah, it don't seem like that. I don't look I don't look a year over. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it it takes a long time. I'm I'm thinking here that, you know, that's 
32 years history of working, you know, with plots of land, like your research plots, mm -hmm. that's a long enough timeline to actually see what works in a long term. It, it does, you know, and that's, that's a, that's a thing, you know, we, bunch of us have talked about, and, and if you look at the fire, a lot of the fire research stuff that gets published and goes on, um, it's a lot of it's short-term stuff. It's like two-year study, you know, somebody working on a master's or two to four-year studies looking at post-fire stuff, and, you know, we don't see, you know, a lot of times you don't see those impacts or effects or you report a negative and really and truly, if you look at it in the long run, it's a positive, but nobody's, you know, they don't look at it. a lot of times it doesn't get looked at in the long run. You see, you see a lot of that, I think, with a lot of the wildfire studies, especially where people looking at impacts of wildfires and stuff, especially out west, uh, they, all they report is a negative immediate impacts that may be negative looking, but the long term impacts are, you know, are huge and, and what most of them are. Are, are well positive on that so so one of the things that i mean you're the fire guy like in my mind <laughs> if i think about fire in the great plains and i have a question i can't answer you're the first guy i'm probably going to turn to well i appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> um and, and we can talk a little bit about uh let's talk about let, let's jump right into some of your research. Let's talk about some patch burning research and, and what you've learned about patch burning. And then we can maybe kind of segue into, you know, timing of burns, burn frequency and historical fire frequency. Like, I don't think we need to talk about how to actually do a burn because workshops are great places for do, oh, yeah. to do that. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. And I want to talk about prescribed burn associations today, too. So mm -hmm. um, why don't, can you lead us off with uh, with some of your patch burning research? Okay. Yeah. Again, we've been, we've been working, uh, you know, again with, with Sam Fullendorf since 1999, we started the, the patch burn study here at uh, West of Stillwater there at the research range where I, I was running it at the time. And we started implementing it back in 1999. So that's, I man, it's hard to believe that stuff been going on for 23 years out there. Um, it kind of puts it into perspective. We've gone back, uh, I guess we burned through those patches like six times, now, seven times now. We're on our, fixing to be on our eighth rotation through there. That makes you feel old. It's like, golly, I've been doing this a long time. But it makes it important. So, again, you know, we started working on that, you know, and that, that work is spread out all over the U.S. and Canada, international. You know, it's gone really good. And, you know, the patch burn stuff was, you know, initially started to, to look at, impacts of that and fire and grazing and, you know trying to mimic a little bit of the historical use of of the lands especially the great plains where we had buffalo larger large herbivores and even medium-sized herbivores that used to roam around and how they utilize fire and would follow fire and the importance of fire and what all it could do and you know we've we've looked at the all the aspects of that with that patch burning and it's been it's just been a pretty incredible process and that patch burning is just a, a pretty incredible process to get implemented uh, there's just so many benefits you know a lot of times we, we tried to look at it tried to keep keep an open mind and not say well this is the the end-all cure-all you know we were kind of tried to be as negative as we could be but a lot of times man you just couldn't find any many negatives about it you know because again we've looked at at soils and you know and about 
you know, nutritive quality of soils and plants and things, man, it just, you just keep seeing benefits and benefits. And then, you know, you know, weight gains on livestock and benefits to wildlife species, you know, different ones. Cause again, you're varying all the habitats out there by patch burning, not burning the entire landscape, you know, all at the same time and same season and, and things like that. And then the impacts that grazing has on those plant communities, um, you know, and what it does and, you know, and how it works to, you know, to me, it, it is, it's definitely, a, it's a drought, you know, it, it's kind of some drought insurance, you know, one of the deals, because again, you don't burn the entire place, you're burning just certain areas every year, and, you know, you're stockpiling fuel, but you're, I mean, it's also forage for, for those times that when it gets tough, you know, we're, we're doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we should, maybe we should define patch burning a little bit better. Yeah. And, and I, honestly, I don't know if there is a really great, de again, definition, because there's, you know, we try to also keep it where there's not just one specific thing, but what, what we, what I would, I define it as is where you take and you burn a portion of a area and then you're going to rotate that burn area around that unit uh, over time. And the, the amount of time between burns is going to be goals and objective oriented to what your goals and objectives are, possibly what is, you know, kind of maybe a historic fire frequency for your region, uh, you know, because as we move further west, when we get less rainfall, it takes a little more time for things to recover, you know, we're going to have a little longer interval between fires uh, that we're going, going to have, and so you know, to, to me, there's also, there's really no set definition of patch size. You know, what, you know, what is a patch size? It's, you know, it just depends on what you want to do and how you, you know, want to do it. Uh, you know, I know people that want to do small patches, you know, a, a bunch of small patches, you know, I guess you could say, you know, example would be, I'm going to burn a third of this place every year and we're going to rotate that every year, a third of it the next year and the ne next year we're going to burn another third, different third of it. Some people burn that whole third as one chunk. You know, that's, you know, we're going to get this one chunk burn as, as one third. Uh, other people will say, well, I'm going to break that third up into 10 different burn units scattered around the area. Um, there's no wrong answer. There's no right answer. You know, it's just depends on goals and objectives of what people want to do. So there's not really, it, it's not a size thing. It's not a percentage or a fraction thing of a ranch. It's just it, whatever works for you kind of yeah. in, in a rotation to keep, in a rotation to keep things fresh and keep things reset. And, and that's the, yeah, that, that's the main thing with, with patch burning. It's, it's to constantly keep either keep fire on the land every year and to keep fresh you know forage for life livestock production is what you're interested in also to keep those habitats for different wildlife species that require certain different habitats you know again it, it moves them and it, it doesn't and that's the thing you know because a lot of people have always had you know fires that have gone through their property from some kind of source and they always complain about, oh, you can't just burn a part of it because the, 
the livestock, the, you know, the cattle will camp on it and it turns into a weed patch and it just stays that way. And it'll stay that way for years. And the main reason is there's nothing else that gets burned after that. You know, and so, yes, they're going to go back to that same spot year after year because it's gray short. That's what they want to be in is short, you know, short stature grass, you know, uh, and forbs and stuff. They want to keep it down short. That's where they're going to camp at. And they're going to camp until something else gets burned or you fence that, all, you know, the historic way to manage that was you either destock the whole pasture until it grew back enough or you fence that, you know, to put temporary fencing up, patch, you know, cut that patch off that didn't burn and give it time to get up even so you don't have that, you know, to keep that uniform grazing across the land and, and um, on doing that. And so, you know, that's that's totally opposite of what patch burning is, but patch burning isn't static. You know, you don't have that one fire and then that's all you get. You get multiple fires. You can either have multiple fires within a year, but the biggest deal is, is you're burning every year and moving that patch and moving that grazing intensity, that focal grazing point uh, within that. And that's what moves it. And again, then once that happens, they, they focus their grazing again from our work that we've done, you know, they're going to spend 70% of their time on those recently burned patches. Yep. That's yep. what, that's what they want, you know, and you've seen it, you, you see it all the time with, with that, you, you know, given a choice, uh, you know, that's what they're going to do. You know, like, like um, Sam always says, uh, you know, if, if, if cows had matches, you know, they would burn something every day. Yeah. That way they could come back. They'd have something fresh all the time. They would. I mean, because I mean, that's what that's what. And, and again, it doesn't have to be livestock. You know, there's all kinds of work's been done worldwide, you know, showing all kinds of species of animals congregate to fire to freshly burned areas. You know, and again, there are species that require long periods of time. You know, there's certain uh, ground nesting birds and stuff that require, you know, heavy buildup of fuel, you know, 24, 36 months post fire, that's their habitat, you know, and so you can create that with patch burning where you can't with a uniform burn that covers the whole landscape or the whole burn unit, but by breaking that up into smaller burn units and burning them separately and then rotating that fire by years along that landscape or along that burn unit. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about historical fire frequency. And, you know, I, I know that your research covers the whole Great Plains, east, west, north, to south, and there's going to be different fire return intervals for different environments. Can you make some generalizations about historical fire frequency on the plains? You know, you know from, from work that we've done, and again, you look, you look at, there's, there's, there's several great maps uh and works that different people have done trying to recreate again what a historical fire frequency is and stuff you know and probably my favorite is probably is the folks rich guyette and the folks at mike stambaugh and the folks out of the university of missouri they uh, in 2012 they published a great map and part of it is because they also they looked at fire scar data, because again, they, they run a tree ring lab there at University of Missouri, you know, and that was a problem a lot of times too, is, you know, there wasn't a lot of trees on the Great Plains, <laughs> so you can't get fire scar data because there's just no, there was no trees, but along the peripheries and the edges, you know, they worked on that, but also they looked at climate, at rainfall patterns, you know, again, as you, in the Great Plains, as you go west, you know, rainfall decreases and things like that. 
and probably their biggest thing, and, and that's what I, I really and truly think about, when I think about fire frequency or fire return interval or how often someplace burned, is I look at it this way, is, it, is how quickly or how long does it take for, for the fuel that you're using to burn to recover? Okay. And so, you know, we've got, you know, there's areas, especially in the eastern part of the Great Plains, you look at the Flint Hills, burns annually, you know. Uh, and, you know I, I, I would argue that, that burning annually in the Flint Hills, I don't, I, I question if that's the best thing long-term for the soil, well, for the, for the right. ecology. Right. But I'm looking at fire return. So you've got fuel loads that are able to recover that quick, you know, and if you look at some of their maps and things, you know, a lot of them were about two to three years. Again, as you go West, it, it opens up a little bit, but you know, we're talking about most all the Great Plains, again, of Oklahoma, Kansas, Southern part, Texas, they're showing anywhere two to four year fire return interval historically. And if you think about it, how quickly does it recover and will it burn again? Uh, again, you know, a lot of times it depends on the weather, but that's the other thing we got to remember. Uh, when you look at, you know, we're humans and we always want these numbers and we, you know, we want some hard. So a lot of times people say, well, uh, burn on a three-year fire return interval. So what that means is we're going to burn every three years. Well, if you look at it, it says, well, historically, that's that's what it was. Well, if you look how they drive that is, again, you know, they look at a fire scar and look at historical shows where it's at. And so you take that. And so let's say a 30 year period. So this tree in a 30 year period, there was 10 fires in that 30 year period. And if you so, you know, 10 divided by or, you know, 30 divided by 10 is three. But if you look at the. Um, the actual map or the actual scars, it'll show, well, year one, it burned, year two, it burned, then it didn't burn again to year seven, then it burned year 15 and 16, then it burned year 19, you know, and then burned year 25 and 28, you know, up to 10. So there's 10, but it wasn't every, it didn't burn every three years like we think that's what it is. You know, some years it burned back to back. Some years it was 10 years between fires on that. But the biggest thing to me is, is, is when you're getting fire, putting fire back on the land, which that's what most of us are, most people are doing because fire has been excluded for so long. We need to go in as, as often as we can early on to, to, to reclaim that land. Because, you know, that's what most burns new people that are burning or getting going, you know, we, we call reclamation burn. You, you know, you've got maintenance burns and reclamation burns. Yep. And a reclamation burn is one that we're trying to reclaim that land and get it back to what we want. Uh, so what are we trying to reclaim it from? <laughs> well, again, that goes back to goals and objectives. A lot of times, but we are trying to reclaim it from woody plant encroachment. Typically, you know, where we're at, cedars and other woodies that are taken over and have displaced different species and things like that that are out there. And so trying to recover that, reclaim that, then again, those burns are always the most difficult because a lot of times we're dealing with volatile fuels, heavy woody fuels. Uh, you know, we don't have as much fine fuel because the woody plants have 
displaced a lot of the forage production or fuel production, whichever you want to look at it. And so our, our, it takes, you know, drier conditions, windier conditions, a little more extreme conditions under the burn window to get it done. And so that, that it ups our risk a little bit. And then, but once we get it to where we want it, we start those maintenance burns where we can burn, we can, we can reduce the fire return interval because it's not as important. Uh, you know, it's important to keep the fire return interval there to keep them from ever coming back. But we don't have to say, all right, we got to burn every three years or this isn't going to happen. We can do that. We can burn under conditions that are more, that are safer, less risk involved, you know, higher humidities, lower wind speeds. Uh, you know, things like that. And that, that burns a whole lot simpler and a whole lot safer to do on that. So there, you know, there's always big differences kind of in fire types. So that like, that kind of gave me a good opening to talk about seasonality and timing of fire. Yeah. Like, you know, traditionally here on the Great Plains, we think of late, late winter, early spring as the time to burn, like the very end of the dormant season. If you've got some, and, and my benchmark is like, I watch winter moisture. If I've had a really dry winter, that tells me I should not burn because that indicates we could be going into a drought. And I, I that's also a good, it, that's why it's a good time to burn because you're coming out of what, you know, I like to call the winter drought a lot. Uh, right. I average maybe four inches, of, four or five inches of precipitation during the winter. So my fine fuels are going to be dry. My medium and my heavy fuels are going to be drier. And those late spring or those late winter, early spring burns we've had great success over the last probably well dad's been burning out here on the ranch i think since 1986 and somewhere around then is when i got handed my first drip torch and told yeah. walk that line go that way <laughs> yeah go that way like oh okay this is cool hey there's fire behind me be sure and stop when you get to the fence <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think somebody i think somebody was down at the other end to get me shut down and i didn't didn't yeah. go wandering off. Catch that boy. Don't let him go any further. <laughs> Take <laughs> his matches away. Um, but lately we've started doing a lot of burns in the summer. I guess not a lot. We've been trying to get as many done as we can, but th there's some different challenges in, in burning in the summer. Can you talk a little bit about um, seasonality of burning and how that can be used to accomplish different goals? Yeah, I can, I'll kind of go back to, to where you started at. Again, you're right. You know, that's the tra traditional burn season in the Great Plains is that late winter, early spring. You know, it depends on where you are, south to north relationship on when you really start. You know, in Texas, you know, early spring is, you know, late winter is February. Uh, you know, in a lot of Oklahoma, we start, a lot of our folks, they start burning in, in February. And as you go to the northern part of the state, you know, then it, it's kind of, a March time frame, and, and, and even some of the April when you get into Nebraska, the folks up there, they're, you know, late April, first part of May, sometimes they'll burn earlier. Uh, again, they're getting to do that. But, I, but you, you know, you were right in doing that. A lot of that has been focused about around livestock production, because again, we're, we're coming out of the dormant season, things are dry, it'll burn good, but it's also going to green up quickly. And so we're going to dump cattle on there. And that's, you know, that's what we're doing it for. Uh, and, and doing that. And so, but also, just like you said, we are coming out of the driest time of the year or the driest season in most, especially the Southern Great Plains is, uh, you know, December, January, and February and March. Those are, or, or at least December, January, February are the three driest months, especially in Oklahoma. That's the three driest months of the year. Again, we can probably look at it in Kansas the same way. Uh, I, I'm close the, enough that I count. 
Yeah, that you, that, that, that's the driest time of year. Also, it, it, our weather patterns are set up where we're getting all these dry cold fronts that come from the northwest and even from straight north from the Arctic. And typically, you look at it, man, you, you know, we get sing, a lot of times we can get single digit humidities. Again, it's dry, it makes burning really difficult. Also, at that time, we start to see a lot of burn bands get slapped on. You know, people trying to burn around burn bands, burn through burn bands, man, it may, you know, you get a lot of consternation between fire departments and landowners. And, you know, it's just a, you know, but that's again, we still try to burn that. And then we, go back and throw March in the mix where a lot of burning gets done in March, uh, especially, you know, Kansas South. Uh, March is the windiest month of the year. That's horrible. So, I know it is. It's, it's looking at from, and from work I've done looking at timing of burns, you know, March is the worst month, has, has the least amount of days and times to get burns done, but that's when most everybody wants to try to burn. And so it makes things a really difficult to do that. And so, and, you know, that gets to be the problem with, having one single season that we burn under, you know, have a burn season and, you know, and say, all right, that our burn season is February through April. You know, again, that, well, that's, you know, three months, we ought to be able to get it done, but how many burn units do you have to get done? You know, what are the, what's the weather pattern? What's things going on within that? A lot of times it gets limited. Then what happens when you don't get a burn done? It backs up to next year. It backs up and you, you do it, for the next year. And by doing that, you know, again, some people possibly destock or they rest a pasture to give it enough fuel to burn or do that. And then you go, well, I can't do that again for another year. I mean, it's just totally going to throw my whole planning and my management strategies off. And so, man, it just starts to mix up. And then pretty soon after a couple of years, it gets compounded. You're not getting half the stuff burned because you're trying to play catch up every year. So, what do you what do you what do we need to do? Well, we need to open that burn window up to where it's a bigger and broader one. And I always like to tell people, they always ask a lot of times people ask me, goes, Well, when's your burn season? I said, Well, we try to start around January 1, you know, try to start as early as we can. And then we'll usually try to get done about midnight on December 31st. You know, so year round. Yeah, fair enough. Is a burn season. Again, a lot of it, again, depends on goals, objectives. You know, that's your, you know, what what's your goals and objectives? But if my goal is to burn, mainly burn, and again, for woody plant control, for livestock production, like that, wildlife even, burning year-round, then there's all kinds of benefits and stuff that we can pop up and, and show with that. And so then let's start burning in that growing season and open it up. And a lot of times, uh, you know, those growing season burns, you've done enough of them they're a whole lot safer and they're a whole lot easier, you know, on the average because we are a whole lot more humid in the summer months because you have more moisture getting pumped in. We got southerly flow from the Gulf of Mexico. We get a little more, you know, relative humidities are typically higher. We have green growing grass and plants out there. They're transpiring moisture into the atmosphere, which increases relative humidity. You know, everybody talks about, oh, summer's hot and dry. Well, and then, but summer is also very wet, wettest time of the year, May, June, July, typically, again, is our, you know, April, throw April, May, June, July starts to slow down in a lot of regions, we start to see a little less rainfall, but again, we still, we get way more rainfall from April to September than we do from October through March, you know. And so it's the typically, whatever typical is in the Southern Great Plains, 
is, uh, you know, that's typically our wettest time of the year. And so we have way more humidity. It's a whole lot safer to burn. You're, you're burning a lot of green fuels that are out there. So that lowers the intensity of the fire. It slows it down, makes it safer, makes it easier and doing that. And again, we've been, we've been doing a lot of that work for, man, almost 20 years. It's been great. You know, the biggest thing, you know, that makes you, makes you feel good and, and to see that is just like what you talked about. We're starting to see a lot more landowners actually from stuff that we've been collecting right now, about 20% of the burning that's going on is burnt during the growing season now. So we've actually, you know, it's actually changed a lot of mindsets and you talk to people and, you know, they're able to get more fire on the ground because they don't limit themselves to one season of the year. Right. I think I figured up once during the, you know, the six weeks of, of March and the first two weeks of April, which is traditionally our burning season here in the Red Hills. There's years that there's three days. There's yeah. years where there's 15 but there's very, very rarely more than 15 good days to burn in those six weeks. I can take a look at the, the chunk of time from June 15th to September 1st, which would be my, my season to do summer burns to meet management goals. And there's like 60 some plus days in there. You know, yeah. I would much rather all things being equal. If I'm going to burn on a day that it's 80 degrees, I would much rather do it in July when the wind is seven miles an hour than do it in March yep. when the wind is 17 and right on that hairy edge of safety. And you're probably dealing with 30, low 30s on humidities or even less. Whereas that summertime, you're probably dealing at a low, maybe 40% RH. And, and a lot of green fuel, a lot of, you know, green fuels out there that slows that fire intensity down and slows the rate of spread down, still gets the things accomplished uh, and doing that. Yeah. Uh, again, should we burn everything in the summer? No, it, you know, it's, it's different seasons. It, again, it goes back to goals and objectives, but also, you know, there's, there's importance for summer burns. There's importance of spring burns. There's importance of burning in the fall. You know, it, it's all there. Uh, it all has benefits, all has pluses, all has negatives, you know? So we were talking about, you know, fire return interval and historical fire frequency. And I, I think about a lot of the fires that are started, you know, quote, in the dormant season that we've seen, let's just take the last six years of history from Anderson Creek wildfire to now. Mm -hmm. And it seems like now I'm not a researcher, so I haven't collected all this data. This is just anecdotal from what I remember reading is almost every fire that we've had during the dormant season when it's been really dry during when it's cold yeah. has been can be traced back to a human source, whether it's, you know, chains on a road, power lines slapping together, pickup backfiring, going down the highway. Most of those are traced back to a human source. So the question is, when could nature light fires on the Great Plains? And I, and we can, I mean, we can have a thunder snow in October, so there could be yeah. lightning in October. I get that. But how likely would February you know, December, February, March fires have been? Probably, again, through through lightning sources, again, through nat natural, whatever you want to call if you want to call it natural, you know, which would be lightning. To me, lightning, volcanoes, you know, that's naturally occurring fire. We don't have many volcanoes to deal with. So lightning, doing that. But if you look at it historically, again, when do when the most of our th thunderstorms occur? 
and you know that will be that spring period into early summer and then you know again we can like you said we can have thunderstorms year-round but the deal is lightning always a lot of times people look at lightning as the you know the source of what was the original fire and what shaped the landscape and that's to me I, i'm not a big proponent of that and there's a lot of people that don't uh, to me humans humans are the the fire starters and the fire source you know you look back historically and you look back now humans will always manage and shape the land they live on to make life easier simpler to make them money to do whatever so again native americans burned because they they saw the benefits of fire for attracting game to make it easier to hunt uh for their you know when they got horses you know they wanted to graze on those kind of areas uh travel corridors so when we we traveled from one from winter campgrounds to summer campgrounds we want to make it easy to get through there we don't have to fight all this trees and brush you know trying to get everything through there we want to make it easy again that's why we build roads but they didn't have that option they used fire also they didn't you know the the warring tribes would you know could ambush you easily in those densely forested areas or densely areas with dense cover so you didn't want to travel so we burned things you know they native americans burned all that because if you think about lightning and what it is what is the, what is lightning tip always accompanied by usually rain usually you know any you know either either rainfall or high rhs and that typically puts fires out. Again, it's the same thing. How many lightning fires do you really see annually or even in a decade out there? And again, you know, granted, a lot of times we're on top of them and we put them out pretty quickly because again, we've got, you know, doing that. I'm not saying that lightning didn't burn. I mean, I, I can see historically, yeah, lightning occurred, dry conditions, not much rain. And yeah, it burned a big chunk of ground. But for the most part, on average and stuff, most lightning fires and stuff are pretty pretty limited. I think they were pretty limited in, in what their scope and their scale was and, and their importance. You know, the human set fires, the Native American fires, those are the ones that shaped this, this the Great Plains, shaped the nation, shaped the world. You, you know, you can follow fire all around the world you know, Native people have always burned the landscapes that they live in because of, again, the benefits that they saw from it, derived from it, not only for everyday life, but also for safety and, and things like that. You know, they, they use that. Only tool in the toolbox. That's, that's what you're going to yeah, pull out. I mean, it is. again, you, you know, you, you can't, you know, they didn't have no shredders. They didn't have no chainsaws. They didn't have bulldozers or anything like that fire was fire was it was it you know that's what they had yeah they didn't even really have a big lighter <laughs> two rocks no. to beat together and a stick on yeah. fire yeah or carry a some kind of pot with coals in it to the next spot use them to start a fire you know all kinds of things and uh and and you know and and now i've said a lot too that um just you know I think Hollywood did a really bad job of portraying Native Americans as, you know, just savages that didn't know anything. You you look at the historical accounts, they knew fire. They knew when to burn it. You know, there's some great stuff that's been some books that are out there about historical fire stuff and uh, about, you know, reasons that they burn. You know, they had it down to 
there's a great account of some tribes in California that were really big into basket weaving. And so they used rushes and sedges and wetlands to, to weave their basket with. Well, they, they learned that if they burned those areas and then come in after, you know, after things regrew, those made baskets that were stronger, lasted longer and things than, than if you use old growth rushes and sedges. You know, we used fire, you know, make it, you know, arrow making. They did it all the way down to, again, it's some of the shrubs or trees that they used to make arrows from that if they burned it off, top killed it, then it would re-sprout and the re-sprouts would grow long and straight, you know, so make great airs. If you didn't do that, you got gnarly, twisted, you know, old growth that you couldn't make a good air out of. You know, so even just down to the small details, they had it down with fire, you know, pretty interesting. Okay. You know, it, your comment about how many fires did lightning start uh, in the last decade, it just on my ranch in the last five years, there's been three, uh, -huh. uh one of them, yeah. one of them was actually this past summer mm -hmm. and I don't know how much rain fell that day, but it was just enough <laughs> to put out the fire. Cause it was, it, uh, the lightning bolt hit one of my fence posts on top of a hill one of my fiberglass fence posts, it melted the clip off and vaporized about 50 yards of wire. <laughs> and, and that was it. I just said, and then there was a spot there that was burned. Um, I haven't been yeah. back there in a, in a couple of weeks. Um, we were actually burning one of our patches. Oh, it's probably been about six, seven years ago on one of our places. And it was a summer burn and we got, we were burning along. We were about to get the backfire totally finished. And I come up in there and I looked at the cedar and it was kind of brown at the bottom, you know, kind of like I said, you know, we haven't burned, you know, we haven't burned here in three years. Why is that brown? And then I got to looking and there was an area around that cedar tree that had regrown, but it wasn't quite as tall as everything out there. And it didn't, it wouldn't burn. And I got looking at it and then I looked at the cedar and there was a crack in the bark and all that. It got struck by lightning and it burned an area that was maybe, I don't even think it burned a quarter of an acre around that cedar, but you know, the rain had put it out. We never, we never had a clue that that thing even had started out there, you know, and there's a lot of that, I think that goes on. Yeah. And small scale. Yeah. So. So let's uh, let's shift gears and talk about the threat of woody encroachment on the plains. It's there, isn't it? Oh man, um, you know, we we can kind of dive off into rangeland, the rangeland analysis platform. I've talked about it a little bit on the show, mm -hmm. and it's not. I don't want to say that it's that it isn't user friendly because it is. Yeah. But you kind of got to know what you're looking for or what you're looking at. And, yeah. I, and I know that's not, not necessarily your wheelhouse. And we, I'm trying to get direct Twidwell to return email so I can mm -hmm. get him on the show to talk about rap and, yeah. and its yeah. role. Um, so maybe you could, could you give us just a brief background on Rangelands Analysis Platform and then tell us yeah, how you I use mean, it? I, I, don't, I haven't used it a lot, but again, I've been on it and looked at it um, in... You know, then it's it's a great tool. You get it. They're getting more and more. Uh, I know Laura Goodman just told me yesterday they've got it up and running now that you can look at forage loss by county due to woody encroachment pretty much throughout all the Great Plains. Looking at all that, you know, and that's scary to see how much forage 
by county that we're actually looking. You know, and you could do that for your own ranch. You could go on and you know outline that. So again, you can look at productivity. You know, they've got that new part of it where you can get they're they're estimating current production for the ever for the past 16 days. So you can kind of look at that and see where that production lies within there. Uh, you know, you flip it to bare ground, shrub cover, tree cover, uh, you know, for specific areas, large areas. Uh, and it's really, there's just a lot of, man, there's so many things you can do with it and uh, look at it. You know, a lot of it's just spending some time on there and doing that. It is, it is user-friendly to a point. I think, I think part of it is there's just so much stuff you can do with it. You don't know where to start. You know, I think that's a big part of it because it's pretty, uh, and then what do you do with all the information? Yeah, yeah. And then what do you do with all it? Yeah, a lot of it is to look at it and say, hey, yeah, I'm getting I'm getting way behind the eight ball here because of woody plant encroachment, you know. And and this is you know, this is where it's at, and this is what I've got. Uh, you know, that's a that's a big part of it. And I see that there's a lot of people using that to start mapping things, uh, especially on watershed scales or you know more landscape scales kind of stuff. But again, it's still even great for an individual you know looking at at your own properties and things like that um my favorite thing to do with it is take like the oldest series that they have the oldest data they have to show yeah. the the tree cover in the great plains yep and then the newest one. Oh, i know it it's, oh you you get people's attention with that yeah real quick uh and then if, then if again and you know like i said if they're producers you know livestock producers you flip that over and look at forage, look at total forage production over that same time scale and go, you know, from it went from there. And usually it's at half of what it was 30 years ago. Yeah. So it's half. You you have lost half of what you've got. You know, and, and the sad thing is a lot of people have not changed the stocking rate since then. You know, it's like, well, grandpa will run 30 head on this place. I can do the same thing. Well, grandpa didn't have 30 plus percent cedar cover out here and uh woody plants and then you you haven't changed the stocking rate there's no way you're going to get a fire to go anyway because it looks like a tile floor out there you know. <laughs> pool table cover with cedar trees you can bet. you relate a uh, percent canopy cover of cedar trees to forage production loss uh yes you can you know dave engel did a bunch of great work on that early in the 90s and stuff on on that and showing that, you know, the production, uh, you know, he had some, uh, see, I'm trying to go off the top of my head, but had some great numbers that like 400 trees per acre, you know, you, which 400 trees per acre kind of depends on size, but he, these were all small trees invading, you know, you, you already were down to about half of forage production within that. So you start looking at cover, you know, again, you think that, 50% cover. So 50% cover is a lot. A lot of times people will look at 50% cover and say, oh, that thing's totally covered with cedar. Well, it's, it's not, but it's it darn sure looks like it. And again, you, you definitely have lost 50% of that ground cover, you know. So again, as you start to, as that number starts to increase, you know, your production starts to decline, you know, and then it's going to get to that point where they meet and then they just fall off, you know, in doing that. And then we're left with an eastern red cedar forest. That's right. And, uh, you know, and again, you know, it's, you know, what's that, what's that really good for, you know? Well, I mean, so I mean, we can play that game. I mean, some of the environmentalists 
you know, they love to say trees are good, cows are bad, trees are good, cows are bad. But I think in this case, there's a lot of nuance because if we let if we let the eastern red cedars take over the plains, which they're winning the war. They're winning right now, for sure. <laughs> We're not even making a dent in it right now. No. Um, but if, if we let the cedars win, it's going to continue to desertify, get dry, get dusty, and erode. And it, it's also like the destruction of, you know, major economic activity. Right. right. You know, and it's not just it's it's destroying the production it's not just taking away from the production of the land you know by the trees taking taking moisture taking land space area and reducing the overall health and productivity you know it's it's also reducing habitat for a lot of other wildlife and then you did, let's just even think about human health so allergy and asthma with cedar pollen Horrible. Used to, 30, 30 years ago here in Oklahoma, we would get, we'd have, you know, typical south winds, prevailing winds, especially starting in about December. Redberry juniper in Texas would start to pollinate. Man, we'd get up there, people, you know, you'd, you'd start to feel allergies. We'd go all the way into March, because again, you'd have redberry juniper, then you get blueberry juniper, and then you get eastern red cedar all pollinate. And man, that's a problem. And a lot of times, it used to be when we get a north wind, it would clean the air out. Well, now Kansas got so much cedar now, you can't, seriously, you you don't, when, when the wind blows from the north, it's cedar, it's pollen coming from Kansas and Nebraska, from the south, you got Texas, Oklahoma. And so again, but you look at human health issues of allergy and asthma issues, you know, most people get ask it. Starting in about December, going all the way to March, I guarantee you most people have problems with allergies and you look at it, cedar pollen. So again, that's a big, that's a big health issue within that. Uh, you look at wildfire issues, you know, again, volatility of fuel. Granted, you know, cedars can make a great fire break if they're wet, you know, they're not going to burn, you know, got leaf moisture, the fire will go out when it hits a solid stand of cedar because there's nothing underneath there to burn. It's too wet. The, the leaves are too, too wet that, you know, they're not going to burn get it dry droughty conditions especially like we're in right now man it's just cranking big time fire and you're not going to stop it and so you're putting people at risk fighting the fire at that risk your risk you, you know homeowners landowners are at greater risk because you have greater fire intensities greater problems that can happen uh, especially in urban areas that allow that to grow up along those edges and stuff you know you know there's all kinds of, it doesn't you know, that issue doesn't, you know, and I think that's what we definitely got to work on, that that issue definitely impacts that that single, that landowner and actually those around you. Because again, just like you, if you're, if you're concentrating and you're working on your ranch to keep it cedar free or to keep it best that we can, but my neighbors aren't doing anything at all, it makes my life difficult, don't it? Because I've still got a seed source. I've still got all that stuff still trying to pound and come in here. You know, so again, we all got to work together to, to eliminate an issue. But, you know, you, you work on that. You, you work trying to get that done. And, and that cedar issue, you know, just keeps growing. But again, so we got to work to pull that away from community. So again, not only does it impact you as an individual, it starts to impact the community, also impact a region, also impact a large region, like the, the whole entire Great Plains. Because again, we've got We've got cedar issues from Texas all the way to North Dakota now, you know, and again, 
30 years ago, we didn't, you know, South Dakota and North Dakota would laugh at you and go, yeah, we don't have a lot. Actually, I was in Kansas, you know, 20 plus years ago and people go, oh, we don't have a cedar problem here anymore. Really? You haven't looked because, you know, it, it's always <laughs> the same thing. You know, we're on the same piece of ground. We see the same piece of ground year in and year out. Uh, and, and we don't notice those subtle changes, you know, kind of a lot of times it's too, it's like whenever you're a kid and as you're getting older, you, you look at people and go, oh, they're not very old. And all of a sudden one day you look at them, and it's like, golly, they've really aged. And it's, they didn't age overnight. It's, it's a process and doing that same thing. You know, that woody plants, you know, invasion didn't happen overnight. And again, you know, we're not going to change it overnight either. It's, it's going to, we got to get to work on it because it's, it's been years coming and it's going to be years for us to get it back, but we've got to work on it and get, and, you know, and get after it. Yeah. I don't have gray in my beard. It's just no. like, it didn't suddenly show up. It's just been kind of, you know, yeah, I get that. Yeah. You look it's at yourself actually, in the mirror every day. That's not gray. It's chrome. Yes. It's just face chrome. You're chroming up there. <laughs> Quick question. Yeah. What's your favorite kind of drip torch? Forestry supplier or Panama? Forestry supply. I hate Panama torches. I'd go the other way. <laughs> yeah, I know. You're from up you're from north. Yeah. You're from I, north of that line. You go up that way and get to Nebraska. My buddies in Nebraska, we argue about this all the time. I give them a hard time about it. But they're they're big Panama guys. I've, I've always liked my I've always liked my normal drip torches forestry suppliers whatever you want to call them uh i can sling fire with them long ways do a lot of stuff i just like the way they they work uh that's it's a chevy and ford question isn't it yeah pretty much pretty yeah. much yeah i just i don't like the i don't like the two-piece lid with the spout on it i like having the i like having the spout over on the other side that's just yeah it's personal preference. I just oh, wanted yeah. to know. It is. I've and I've used them both, and uh, you know I can use them, but I just just like my regular torches on that. So you get to play with a terra torch sometimes too, though, don't you? Uh, we've got one. We don't use it a whole lot, man. Those things are just a pain to clean up. You know, once you use it, you need to use it. Need to use it a lot to to make it kind of worthwhile. That I've, you know, I've actually got to burn with hella torches. I've burned with helicopters and I've used ignition with dates, you know, ping pong ball machines. I've been involved with some of that. Uh, I've used, you know, propane. I've, I've burned with uh, all kinds of different stuff. I've used a fire rake. I, I remember setting a, over a half mile of backfire with a fire rake one day, you know, getting grass in the teeth and keeping it lit and just dragging it along and you know, kind of the old fashioned way of doing that kind of stuff. So kind of like I the natives. Had to use, it. You know, what I always remember people tell me, oh, we, we use a tire behind a four wheeler. We'll soak it in diesel and light the tire off and hook it to a chain and drag it behind a four wheeler. I've never done that one yet. So I haven't either. It just seems, that seems really, really safe. That's that. Uh, yeah. That sounds redneck as you can get right there. The other one that I've never done and probably have no desire to do would be, um, like there's there's guys that would take it at a pipe, yeah, and tie the back of it up on a four wheeler, mm -hmm. and let the other end of it down on the ground and just have a little hole drilled in it, yeah, and maybe a little wick. And they're driving around on their four wheeler with this pipe full of fuel, just dripping fire behind them. 
I like my drip torch. I can put that out. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that's, you know, what's really interesting is, you know, I've I've helped a lot of people get started burning and trained with that. And a lot of people's never seen a drip torch, you know, they've used it, you know, even just a handheld propane torch, you know, trying to the light and do that and you give them a drip torch you know no matter what brand it is and get them to use it and they're like wow this is really nice to be able to to do that and uh, and to have that um here's here's one for you question for you is that i can tell them myself big time so how many times have you ever been on a fire get ready to start a fire and you don't have anything to start the fire with no matches no lighter that has actually not happened to my group. I, Good deal. I, since I, since I've been doing this so long, like I, and I used to smoke cigarettes, I just got in the habit of carrying a lighter Yeah. and I haven't smoked in years. There's a big lighter in my pocket and there's probably a half a dozen of them laying around in my office. You never yeah. know when you're going to need a big lighter. That's right. I've got, I always carry one, but again, early on in my stuff, I would not carry one as often and do that, you know, and you got, got where people didn't smoke, you know, you know, so nobody's doing that. Uh, yeah. That's the greatest thing. You know, you write a good burn plan, you get everything planned out. The weather's good. You get everybody there and you get all the equipment there and you get out to the site and let's light this fire. And it's like, you got 50 guys, 10 side by sides, a half a dozen trucks. Nobody has anything to light the fire with. That's <laughs> really great. That's embarrassing as I'll get out. So one time what I had to do, I mean, we, it wasn't like we could run back to somewhere and get some. I took a page of the fire plan, rolled it up back in the day when you actually had cigarette lighters and vehicles <laughs> at work, pushed that in, stuck it, it stuck the piece of paper in the on the lighter and then fanned it and I got it to light and I, I used my fire plan to light the fire with so that's a you got to do what you got to do every now and then whenever especially when you make stupid mistakes so I've never had to take one of my burn plans and light it on fire to start a fire <laughs> that's one thing I've never had to do yeah, well I got you beat on that one <laughs> I'll let you have that one <laughs> there we go uh you had any bad wrecks like not wrecks. You had any bad uh, getaways, bad escapes? Uh, you know, I've, I've burned. I'm almost at 1,400 burns that I've done in the last 35 years. Uh, I've had three escape fires. And by escapes, I mean, that is fires where I have to call other people to help me put it out. So call the fire department and do that. It's not out of control until it leaves your property. Well, even if it even if it does spot over on the other property, I can get it out. With, yeah. you know, that's a spot fire to me. That's, uh, you know, that's a spot fire. It's spotted. We we were able to suppress it with equipment, people on site, get it done. That's good. You know, those fires where you got to call for help. It's getting bigger and out of control. It, more than that, I've had about three of those. Uh, you know, nothing. Again, even of those, actually, one of them. I called the fire department. We actually had it out by the time the fire department got there. And as soon as the fire department got there, their transmission on their truck went out anyway. And so we had to help them haul it back into town um, kind of deal. But the other ones, you know, maybe, you know, it got out, burned about 120 acres over on some neighboring properties and stuff. But no, you know, no, no damages, you know, no insurance claims, no anything like that and all the the burns and years that I've been burning and, and things like that. But, you know, 
I was talking to somebody else. We were talking about spot fires and escapes the other day, actually, uh, on that. And, you know, if, if you burn long enough, you know, things, you know, you're always going to have spot fires, you know, that that's just, that's part of burning. And, you yeah. know, it's kind of like riding a horse, you know, if you don't fall off every now and then, you just, you haven't rode enough miles, you know, because you're, things are going to happen. Same thing with, with burning, you're going to have some spots, you know how to, you, you know, typically you learn when they're going to happen and you're looking for them. And when it does happen, you're right there on it. And they typically don't get very big and no problems uh, and things like that. We always talk about, but with escape fires, it typically always seems like it's a big, it's always a compounding problem that happens. And that's, and the ones that I've had are the exact same way is the fire will, you find the fires out and then all of a sudden a piece of equipment breaks down, you know, or it yeah. gets stuck on the way there, you know, or, or they drag the hose and it pulls the nozzle, you know, just all kinds of goofy things, you know, run, they run over the hose, had one one time, it wasn't, a, it wasn't an escape, but it was getting close to it. The guy was, had stretched the hose out and was spraying water down. Next thing you know, he looked over, he'd laid it in a, a really hot area with a bunch of coals there, burnt the hose into. And so all of a sudden that piece of equipment was rendered useless pretty much. Uh, you know, we had, we had one where, you know, again, the same thing where on the way, one of the vehicles just quit working for all of a sudden it wouldn't work. Uh, you know, so, so that broke down and then all of a sudden you get there and then you're, you have less water than you think in one of the trucks and all of a sudden you run out of water, you know, so you got, a lot of times it's always that it's these compounding problems that just keep compounding and compounding until it's like, God, I got to have some help here to, to get something out. Yeah. I, I'm not going to say I haven't lost the fire that I've been burned boss on. I'm going to say that we, I mean, we have lost fires, of course. I mean, everybody does. You do it long enough. You're going to lose one. You're going to have to call the volunteers, be embarrassed, feel bad. I mean, it, it sucks having to come, have, yeah. it, it really sucks having to call the volunteers, come bail exactly. you out of a situation. That's right. And, you know, we can talk to her blue in the face about how to actually do a burn and what to do burn day on the ground. But I think you and I can agree that 90% of it is days before the burn sitting in here in the office, looking at the map, making the plan, making your contingencies, identifying, you know, areas in preparation that are weak that you're going to need units at because when the fire comes here at 11 o'clock there's going to be enough lift we need to be 500 yards down downwind to yeah. catch the spot fire that's going to happen yep that's going to happen that's uh, right you know and that's that's the deal you know i burn everything i burn i burn it in my head long before it ever gets burned you know i think i think through it i've always done that you know we're always I picture how it's going to burn. And the other thing I do, and I tell people, because a lot of times, you know, when you go out and you walk or you drive around your burn units, you know, getting ready to, you know, plan it, how you're going to burn it, do whatever. Everybody's always looking inside the burn unit. I, I actually probably spend more time looking outside my burn unit to what's around it. And that helps me dictate a lot. Because again, if I look out here and say, all right, oh, over here, We've got a neighbor over here that doesn't graze and he's got grass, you know, hip high to elephant out there. It's like, man, I really don't want to send a fire that way because if there's a spot gets over in there, 
and it's going to be hard to ever get that thing out. Or they got an area where they they've cut all these cedars and they're just laying everywhere and they haven't done anything with it. And it's like, golly, if it gets in there, we're it'll take six weeks to mop it up if we can ever even get it out. And so I want to send fire if I can. If I can send my smoke this way, I want to send it away from that. Or if I got a neighbor that grubs it down to the ground, you know, like yeah, I'm going to send my fire that way because. If it spots over there, it ain't going anywhere or, you know, no big deal kind of deal. So I, I look a lot outside the burn unit as to what's around me, um, you know, not only for smoke as a big part of it, but also for my fire to which way I want to send it to make it safer and easier. You also I'll look at fire breaks that I may have. You know, I may I may have over, over here I can use a county road, you know, so I got a bare ground county road over here on two sides. I really want to send it that way. You know, traffic's not going to be a problem. Smoke in that way, it's no big deal because it's just a dirt county road. But I've got, you know, I got 30 foot of bare ground fire break over here. It'd be a whole lot easier to backfire off of this than it will over here where I've got, you know, I'm going to have to put in a fire break or do something like that, you know, and or, or have to work off a mode line and stuff. I'd rather work off of that bare ground road that's already there. It's a thousand percent easier to burn off of a two track road than it is to build a fire guard to go down fence lines. And that's one of the one of the things that we really are good about doing here in the Red Hills. I say that, but um, is, you know, we've had our burn association since 2008. And mm-hmm. we, we really try to promote a lot of burning culture, not just in our area. We're trying to promote other other burn associations in the state to get started. But the power in that is, you know, we have a group that, you know, goes and does this a lot we kind of know each other um fire culture man fire culture is a tricky one you know we we talked a little bit about the flint hills they have a very strong fire culture Mm -hmm. and you know their burn season is like april 7th to april 15th (laughs) it seems like million and a half acres get burned in that week and look i get it you know that that's that's the business plan that's what they need to do to make a living make their land payments i get it I like, you know, I like looking at the, you know, midsummer, later summer window. It might not always be the most ideal from a grazing planning point of view or mm-hmm. being able to manage stockpiles. But I'm starting to look at that as just another management challenge to overcome and and just something else to figure out. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the other thing about like that, like seasonality and burning at different seasons, you know, not only doing that makes a lot of times makes burning simpler. You know, I I always tell people, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, you know, burning is not rocket science because I am definitely not a rocket scientist. I'm not that smart. And so, but it's, it's simple. It's easier. And I think people are scared of it because they think it's, they think it's a lot more difficult and it's a lot more problematic. And, it, and it's not that difficult. As long as you think through it, it's just like anything else. The more you're around something, the more you get comfortable with it, the more doing it. That, that you, the more that you do it, the more you can do it and you do it safely. But, you know, to make it simple. So, again, burning stuff in the springtime and then burning into those burned areas in the summer. And that makes life simple because it's that fire is not going to go across those areas you burned in the spring. There's no old growth to carry it. So you can do that. And then burning stuff in the summer, you go turn around and burn it in the spring. Granted, yeah, it you burn it in the summer, there's enough fuel, you know, there's enough grass regrew and things like that. It will burn. 
but you're you're dealing with really short stature fuel, simple and easy to put stuff out. You know, so again, you know, build on your burns and and do things makes make life simple and safer. You know, that's that's a big part of that too. Is is how do you make it? How do you make the burns safe, simple, and easy? Because it, it really shouldn't be a lot of hard work out there. You know, it should be it should be enjoyable. You know, really, burn is fun. It is fun, and you know, and you can make it a you can make it. Sometimes people make it really difficult when it shouldn't be difficult. But like you said, with with the group you burn with, the more you burn with a group, man, the greater it is because everybody knows their job. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do, what they're looking for. Man, it, it's fun to have a great burn crew to burn with. It's that is one thing that is so much so enjoyable is to have good burn crews. To you know, you don't worry about anything. You know, you know, you know. If I sent you down the line over here lighting, you, you know where to go. You know how to light. You're, we're not going to worry about it. You're not going to send, you know, create too big a head fire or anything like that. You know, whatever we need to do, you know, you're going to, it's going to be done right. Sometimes you put the guy on the torch that doesn't know how to stop. And sometimes you put the guy on the torch <laughs> that goes really slow and really careful. It depends on the day. That's for sure. I, I spend almost as much time on, let's just say, like line assignments, what crews I'm going to put on what line. Mm-hmm. It, that's almost as critical as like oh, fire yeah. guard prep and the planning for wind directions is having the right team go down the right line to deal with the hazards that they're going to be presented with. Yeah. You know, there's that's, that's things I always look at is again, which side is the most difficult or is the greatest risk. And a lot of time I'll be always be on that. I, you know, I always put myself over there. I want to be, if I'm in charge, I want to be in charge of the bad side. I don't want to have it easy because I want to know what's going on and be in control of doing that. Yeah. And so, and who I put where, that's always a big thought about that. Like I said, there is, there's times to burn whenever you need the slow poke person that don't walk real fast to be lightened because we need to go slow today. And then there's other times, man, we need some speed because we need to get, we got great conditions. It's perfect. Let's go and get it done. Uh, you know, that's, that's reminds me of one we did a, a couple of years ago or my friend uh, on the ranch, my friend Russell Blue runs. It was uh, like we show up and I'm kind of expecting like a 35, 3700 acre deal. Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, we've expanded and added on a couple extra units. It's <laughs> 5500 acres. There you go. Like, OK, what's my piece? And he said, you're going to be east boss and line boss. And here's the map. And I looked at it, I go, dude, there's like eight miles here we got to cover. And yeah. he said, yeah. So I looked at it a little bit more and made some quick crew assignments. And we went and briefed it. And the last thing I said at the brief is, guys, we got 14 miles to get around this monster. Speed is life. Let's go. Yep. And I think it's less than three hours later, we, we were around it. Yeah. You, you know, and... You're probably the same way. I would rather burn a big unit than I had a little one. Oh yeah, it takes all. It doesn't matter. It takes all day. It's on. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, burning's like camping. You know, it don't matter if you go camping for three days or three weeks. You still got to take the same amount of junk. The only (laughs) thing you, the only thing you got to bring is more food. Yeah, and burn is the same way. It don't matter if you're burning three acres or three thousand acres. It takes the same amount of equipment. You just got to bring more torch fuel. Uh, you know, and that's, that's the deal with, you know, so you might as well, big burn units are way more forgiving. You know, I spend a lot of time burning a lot of small stuff, 
you know, and that's what's risky. I'm, I'm burning this little bitty chunk inside this big chunk. Uh, you know, I remember burning some uh, research plots up in northwest Oklahoma. We were doing some work on. They were like seven, 10 acre research plots. We're in the middle of a 2000 acre pasture burning seven acres <laughs> in grass and sand sagebrush waist high. And I'm looking around going, yeah, this thing gets out. We're having fun. Uh, you know, and it, it, fortunately it didn't, uh, but it's like, holy smoke, you know, I'd, oh, I'd rather I'd rather burn the 2000 than I had that seven I had to burn in the middle of it, you know. Yep. And I was I was trying to go this direction earlier when I was talking about uh, prescribed fire associations, you know, and back to my comment that, yeah, it's a lot easier. I'd much rather burn off of a, even just a two track road than a fence line. So we have a tendency to put fence lines on our property line. Like, by God, it's got to be right on the line. And a lot of times it's really impractical to try to get down that fence line. And if you try to stay just on your property, you might have to box around some canyons that really, really need fire to get in there just for access. So one of the great things about our burn association is, uh, you know, we have, uh, we have several state prescribed fire coordinators, like funded Mm -hmm. positions. Yeah. Ours is Jess Crockford. I know yes. you know him. Oh man, Jess is so so great. Like the, his actual job title escapes me right now, but he he goes around and he helps people set up burn associations and write burn plans. And he'll even show up on the get on the day of your fire and run a torch for you. And yeah. let me tell you, Jess is a lead igniter. Life is good. Yeah, he's on the eight. Yeah. I can I, go I send him to do hard to stuff. With, I got to burn with Jess back in September. I come up and did a uh, burn training for the NRCS there in Kansas. And we were outside Pretty Prairie over where Dusty Tahoe lives and that area. And and Jess come over and helped us every day that we burned. And they had so much fun working with Jess and doing that. He's one of them ones, you know, exactly right, man. A great crew member. You know, if you send him over there, things are going to get done. They're going to get done right. They're going to get done safe and and doing that. It's, It's good to have, you know, good folks like that. But like I said, the burn association part, man, makes it different and makes it great. And like you said, you start, you know, you got those boundaries. And that's what we're always worried about with fire is, you know, that fire getting off of your property. You know, so I always say, you know, fences are the biggest determinant of fire. Because we always don't want it to burn through the fence, not because it's not going to damage the fence. It's because we're worried about it getting across that property line. Yeah. And if we take away those fences, those property boundaries, fire is able to function across the land like it should. And that's where burn associations, that's where that fire culture, again, that's why the Flint Hills of Kansas, you know, Osage country in Oklahoma, why they burn so much and and they're able to do that. There's no boundaries. Fire knows no boundaries up there because everybody burns, expects to burn. And it does that. And that's why, you know, fire can function on that landscape. And that's where, you know, we've lost it because we got these boundaries and we don't want fire to get off of our property on the next. But if we get together with neighbors, form that burn association, start that fire culture, you're right. It's a whole lot easier to burn from this lease road or two track road on my place to the county road, lease road, creek 
whatever on the neighbors over here. We ain't going to try to put a fire break in this big old canyon and trying to deal with all that. Let's just burn the whole thing out. We can go from point A to point B and life is good. Be and done before lunch. That's right. And be done and to be done instead of working all week on this thing and babysitting it and all that, you know, if we just kept it on our place and doing it. And that's the that's the great process of what burn associations should be is it gets neighbors talking about fire and using fire. Cause how many times, you know, when probably when y'all started using fire, you know, you were one of the few folks out there that were burning. And, you know, you had the naysayers and the negative people that were neighbors and doing that. But you also had other neighbors going, well, why didn't you let it come across the fence? I'd like to burn my place, too. Well, it's like, well, we don't have a plan and we don't have a break. But a lot more than often than not, if most time, if neighbors will talk to their neighbor, you got to talk, you know, amazing what communication does. You know, talk to them and say, hey, I'm planning on burning this. What do you think about that? Well, I'd like to burn, too. Okay, let's make a plan and make it simpler. We can go whole road to whole road. You know, great example of that was this last spring where I live at, live on, on this on the section I live on. There's four landowners on four quarters there. And one of the neighbors called me and said, hey, I'm going to burn today. And I said, oh, okay. And I'll, I'll be glad to help. And so we started working. I said, I've talked to all the neighbors. They want to burn. Have you talked to them? No, not really. I said, well, let's call. Then all of a sudden I look up and another neighbor over there had started a fire it's like, hey, hold on a minute. Let's let's all get together and do that. And before you know it, in about 10 minutes, we made a plan and we burnt the whole section. You know, we just went around the roads, wrung it out, and life was good instead of trying to burn this quarter here and this, you know, make life simple, you know, make fire simple uh, and do that. Yeah. One of the things that we've had a problem with is like, and this was decades ago, dad would burn a piece. And the neighbors would be like, no, 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 we don't want to burn with you. We don't want to burn with you. We don't want to burn with you. So dad had burned a piece. And then two or three days later, they light their pasture and burn through our fence into our fire car. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So like, come on, let's, let's, let's do it together. It makes it simpler. It makes it cheaper, you know, and everything else, you know. So I apologize. Uh, I do have to get going this morning. So we're going to have All to cut right. this a little bit short. Um if folks want to know more about how to start a burn association or some resources, where could they go and where can people find you on social media? Uh, I'm, you know, just John Weir, uh, J-O-H-N-W-I-R on Facebook. Uh, I've got it's just my own personal Facebook, but I publish all, post a lot of fire stuff and things that we can do. Also, if you look up Oklahoma State Natural Resource extension we've got a great facebook page there with some great folks that put a lot of good posts out uh, a lot of them are about fire but all it's all about natural resource about land management and things that we can do uh, within that for burn association information uh, the oklahoma prescribed burn association our website which is ok-pba.org we have information about starting a burn association we've got um, information we've got actually bylaws, you know, copies of bylaws and different documents that other burn associations have used that are already there that you can look at and use help to form one. Um, you know, again, like I said, depending on what state you're in, there's, you know, there's always a lot of people out there that can help uh, with doing that. You know, like I said, Kansas has got some great folks working in their uh, Kansas Burn Association. 
the folks up in Nebraska, there's some great, great stuff. Texas has some great resources and stuff as well as Oklahoma. So it depends on where you're at. There's some, uh, there's resources out there to, to help with that. Uh, we've got a bunch of good fact sheets. If you'll look up Oklahoma State Extension, uh, it'll take you to the Oklahoma State Cooperative Extension page, and then you can do a search on fact sheets. Uh, just type in fire, and you know we've got all of our different fire fact sheets and stuff that we worked on. We got a fact sheet about starting a burn association, even within that, but also other great fact sheets all, about all kinds of different stuff about growing season fire, you know, fire equipment, fire planning, things like that. So doing that, so there's a lot of a lot of information out there and about. So. Very cool. Very cool. I'll make sure I get as much of that stuff crammed into the show notes as I can. Yeah. And I, I don't even think we scratched the surface today of, of talking about fire. Yeah, no, you never can. So uh, we need, we need to do this again. For, Give me a call or sometime we'll do it, do it again when you get a chance. So for sure. Well, I really appreciate your time today, John, and uh, have a great week and rest of y'all. Y'all have a great week. Good. Tell your dad hi and y'all take care. Will do, sir. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.